0: reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding and centeredness. learn more today at eomega.org/thrive.
1: From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami and this is the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Clark Strand, is the editor of the Haiku Challenge a monthly haiku contest sponsored by Tricycle, the Buddhist review. And he's the former senior editor of that magazine. Clark's the author of numerous books on spirituality and religion, including Meditation Without Gurus and How to Believe in God. With his wife, Pradita Finn, he co-authored The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary. Clark and Perdita were guests on this podcast when that book came out, and I encourage you to listen to that conversation. His newest book is Waking Up to the Dark, The Black Madonna's Gospel for an Age of Extinction and Collapse. Very uplifting book, Clark. (laughs) (laughs) I love the title. I'm in in a mood where I like my titles dark, (laughs) you know, waking up. In the dark, to the dark, for the dark, you know, and I love the gospel for an age of extinction and collapse. Perfect way to end 2022. So, Clark Strand, welcome back to the Spirituality and Health podcast.
2: Thanks very much, Rami. I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. You know, in the introduction, I know Perdita's not here, but in her introduction to Waking Up to the Dark, she writes that. This book, and I'm quoting her, reveals the dangers of an enlightenment, and she has that in quotes: the dangers of an enlightenment that has brought us more and more brutal wars, and greatly accelerated the destruction of the natural world. And I'm curious if you think that really summarizes the enlightenment. I mean, I, I think I think it's oh, I just his name just popped out of my head. But you'll you'll remind me who it is, I'm sure. But that speaks of two kinds of enlightenment: Western enlightenment, the age of reason, that kind of thing, and Eastern enlightenment with with the Buddha and and uh, waking up spiritually. Ken Wilber is the guy right, I think right. of, and I'm wondering if you think that that her <laughs> very dire assessment of Western enlightenment is really accurate. I mean has there been no advancement in in western enlightenment we got civil rights we got women's rights human rights medicine science i mean things are are, are have imp- some things have improved since the 16th century i mean i get i get and i won't argue with her over the fact that human brutality and the destruction of nature i mean those things are are you know part of the enlightenment but i got to give the enlightenment credit for flush toilets and indoor plumbing that's got to be worth something
2: well i think if you read that in context what she's saying i think it makes more sense what she's talking about she's talking about the age of enlightenment that you know interestingly brought us among other things the witch burnings you know people have this mistaken belief that witch burnings took place in very backwards areas but in fact it was the most scientifically advanced places that were the most aggressive in, you know, their practices against women. And so you find in Scotland, areas of Germany, you know, where the age of reason was an ascendant, yeah, you find tremendous violence against against women during that time. And so I think if you talk to younger feminists today, you'll find that their assessment of, you know, of the quote, age of reason and enlightenment isn't necessarily filtered exclusively through the lens of, of scientific progress right you know most people don't know that the witch burnings in Salem for instance were really overseen by the fine men of Harvard right most people don't associate Harvard with witch burnings but as an institution it was very intimately connected to those to those not burnings but to those you know but to those those executions. So I think that's what she's talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I get it. I was being more than a little facetious, but yeah, when I think of Harvard, I, I mostly think of slavery. Yes. Well, nowadays, burning. right? But you know, if you have yeah. to, if you have to pick your poison, I mean, you know, right. you you, right. you got to admit that. But she's these,
2: also talking about the. She's also, you know, engaging in a kind of a pun there. By enlightenment, we mean the the journey into greater, greater light and greater certainty you know, basically, the more human beings hit their stride with a confidence and a sense of what they can do and what they can accomplish, then, you know, the more evil they do in the world. And so you find that, you know, the Middle Ages, you know, for all their brutality, haven't seen, you know, never saw anything even remotely approaching like World Wars One or Two, And the uh, cultural and structural violence that we see today You know, is aided and abetted by technologies that we generally think of as, you know, time saving and very convenient. And yet they support systems of oppression that have now pretty much spread around the world. And in the book, I talk about the origins of, um, the origins of that trend in the suppression of the holy dark and the gradual ascendancy of artificial lighting. And everything that it symbolizes and represents
1: absolutely I, I understand that and and I think that there's i don't, i don't know what we, how we would call it, but the, but the very metaphor of enlightenment, meaning what, what you're just saying moving toward the light, moving into the light, it seems like and i don't know if this is true universally, so I, I won't speak in. in Too broad a brush, but it seems that Western religion uses light as an ideal that we're always, you know, we want to move in that direction. But you know, and tell me what you think of this. But the more we move into what we call light, the more the more certain we are of things that we really are not certain, or we really cannot be certain of that we we. The, the less darkness we allow, the, the less we're capable of humility. And the more we assert the truth of what we, of our assertions, right? We don't, we don't we just say what we're saying is true, but we don't know what we're saying is true because we have no humility around these things because we've wiped out any place for doubt because we've wiped out any room for darkness. Does that, does that make any sense to you?
2: Yes, I think it does. And in fact, there was one of the first people I studied in any depth when I began to research this subject in the mid-1990s was a Jesuit historian of technology named John Stoudemire. And he wrote a remarkable essay. I think it was the Boardman Lecture essay one year at, I believe it was Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania. I can't remember exactly. But he talked about the holy dark and the fact that as we have journeyed more and more into the light, and by light, he, he doesn't mean just the symbolic light, but the, the literal supersaturation of light in modern culture. So John Stodmeyer was a, a Jesuit priest and historian of technology, and he wrote a, a famous article about the holy dark wherein he asserted that the further we have traveled into this world, hyperlit, super saturated, super illuminated world, where the lights are on all the time, the further we journeyed from darkness, uncertainty, doubt, the kinds of things that create the sort of gray areas or the liminal spaces which, within which we can engage in imagination and uncertainty, compromise, and simple wondering. And he felt that the dangers to the human soul were so great that um, – uh, he was quite panicked actually by, by the trend towards higher and higher degrees of illumination. It, you know, and he, he spoke about it culturally and historically. He looked back to the middle ages and, you know, talked about the habit that people had of, of waking in the middle of the night for prayer. But he, he also talked about what it was like to live in a world that didn't have such crisply defined corners and edges. Now, I know that some people may find it to be kind of, kind of a stretch, but one of the effects of staring at, at at backlit screens constantly and being on social media and exchanging opinions with one another is this sort of il- illusion that's created uh that there are very firm boundaries between people and between ideas right that you know there's one side there's the other side there's right there's wrong and studmayer uh, could you know could see this coming you know 20 years ago and felt that we were headed into a very not not in the dark era physically, right? We're heading to a brighter and brighter world, but a morally dark universe.
1: Wow, that's really interesting because that's clearly what you know. He's very prescient. I mean, that's clearly what's happened, and the darkness is is the moral darkness is only getting thicker as the physical darkness is getting less and less. It, it seems to that that people are. And, and you say this in your book, you write that our fear of the dark is really the fear of being alone. I, I want to take a look at that a little more closely. It seems that, that people do have a fear of the dark uh, and people do feel alone, whereas in, I don't know, various mystical traditions that I've had some experience with, you, you discover that there is no such thing as alone alone. I mean you could play with the word alone as all one i mean because that's all there is there's just this one reality of which we are all a part there is no being alone when you understand the true nature of reality but the fear of being alone how does that drive us into the light because when we're when we're in the light we're not actually connected we we just growl at each other in a sense. <laughs> well, I, I think that there is this this
2: uh, kind of an illusion that human beings naturally fear the dark. And, you know, it's a very old idea, right? You know, this it goes back to early anthropologists who imagine upper people of the other upper Paleolithic like, you know, living in fear of wild animals all night long, you know, sleeping with one eye open as it were. You know, and in fact that that, that probably is not true. People for one thing, they all slept together you know, if they needed a sentry or felt that there was some possibility for danger, you know, they would, you know, have somebody stay up for a part of the night to feed the fire and so forth and so on. But in general, it was a time for storytelling and closeness and intimacy. And uh, people, I don't think, had the associations with the dark that we do today. Children in particular, you know, are said to be afraid of the dark. But in fact, if you take a child who's alone in the dark in a room and crying, and you bring it into the next room, even if there are no lights on where there are people, whether a mother or a father or both, then the child will stop crying usually right away. And the reason for that is they don't fear uh, being in the dark. They fear being alone in the dark, right? There's mm-hmm. a natural desire for intimacy and for spiritual connection, I mean, physical connection in the dark. And that translates in the, the great mystical texts of the world into a desire for spiritual union in the dark as well, which is the reason why you sometimes hear apophatic uh, prayer described as dark prayer, right? Or prayer that occurs in a, 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 a sort of a, a liminal boundary between sleeping and waking. You know, my favorite book of the Bible, is one that I'm sure you probably know quite well as a rabbi, which is the Song of Songs. Now this is the only, as far as I know, the only like love poem in the Bible, right? In the Jewish or the or the Christian scriptures. And yet a lot of it takes place in the dark. And there are these, you know, the, the poetry of it is all about dimness and darkness and, you know, touch. Uh, and sound and smell and taste. My favorite line from the Song of Songs is where the lover says to her beloved, I sleep, but my heart is awake. I sleep, but my heart is awake. And I, you know, for most of my life, I think I probably in, in, encountered that verse maybe in college or certainly in my early 20s. And for probably 20 years after that, I thought that it was really describing, you know, some sort of mystical state or something like that. Actually, what it's describing is an an actual experience that pre-modern people had. They would sleep for four hours and then wake for two hours in the middle of the night and go to sleep for another four. In the 1990s, a researcher at the National Institute of Health, Thomas Ware, the man who discovered seasonal affective disorder. He did an experiment to see if human beings had always slept the way they do now, in convenient eight-hour blocks like their eight-hour workdays. What he discovered when he took a group of people off of all forms of electrical lighting for 30 days was that for the first three weeks, they slept a little longer than usual. Right. Repaying what he called the national sleep debt, because Americans are, are typically chronically sleep deprived. But at week three, something remarkable happened, and they all began to wake up after four hours of sleep for two hours of what Ware called quiet rest, because he couldn't think of anything else to call it at the time. Then they would sleep for another four But the strange thing was that during those two hours in the middle of the night, his subjects all reported feeling the same way. They said they felt incredibly peaceful, like more peaceful than they ever felt before in their lives. And so he sampled, you know, their bloodstream to to take an endocrinological portrait of what was happening in their body at that time. And he found that the hormone prolactin, right? This is the hormone that that reaches elevated levels in nursing mothers. It's the hormone that keeps birds quiet and roosting on their nests. Uh, it's the hormone that keeps us our bodies still while we're sleeping. He discovered that the pro, that the hormone prolactin remained at sleep levels during those two hours rather than falling as they ordinarily would. So, a modern person who's sleep deprived and who stays up until midnight and then sleeps in a room where there may be some, you know, blinking computer lights on or whatever, in short, a human being who doesn't sleep in a natural way, if that person wakes up after four hours, their prolactin levels are going to fall right away. And they're going to probably feel rather than peace, they may feel quite anxious, you know, they're not going to get enough sleep, right? Or they may fret or worry. But when people are given enough darkness to work with, they sleep in this pattern that allows them to experience what what I came to think of as the hour of God. At the end of his study, Ware decided that this state, which was basically like a meditation retreat for every homo sapiens on earth, is probably what people who engage in spiritual practices today, like yoga or meditation, right? Or active imagination or any number of other practices that you can think of. Were probably trying to recapture something that was once simply the human birthright.
1: Well, if I remember right, you you do practice something like that. Don't you get up in the middle of the night to, to do Well, it? I do, you know, and I must be
2: like a reincarnate Jew or something because <laughs> I discovered this practice long before I knew what it was called. Reb Nachman of Breslov, a, you know, late 18th, early 19th century Hasidic rabbi from Ukraine, I believe. Reb Nachman of Breslov taught his students that the oldest form of meditation, which he traced all the way back to Genesis, was a practice he called hitbodedut, or self-seclusion, or, you know, solitude, or being alone. And it involved rising in, you know, whatever time of year, Basically four hours after some six hours after sunset, so two hours of just puttering around, four hours of sleep, rising at that time and going out in the fields to pray and to talk to God as if to a true good friend, right? It was an unstructured outpouring of the soul. That's the way Arya Coplin translated it, an outpouring of the soul. And so, you know, I basically discovered this as a Zen monk. I wasn't like talking to God. I was talking to my, you know, ancestors, to the animals, to the wind, the night, the moon, you know, basically anybody would listen. I lived in a remote monastery in the Catskills, you know, where there wasn't an electric light for anywhere, you know, know, 10 miles around. And where the only lights after dark in the monastery were candles. I used to wake up after the other monks had gone to bed and go out to the graveyard where I would do this practice. It was only about, I want to say, maybe 10 years later that a friend of mine, David Tapper, you know, he gave me this little book of Rev. Nachman's teachings called Outpouring of the Soul that described this practice. And I thought, my gosh, this is it. This is what I've been doing.
0: Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence. A weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org/thrive.
1: Yeah, it's a very powerful practice. I I've, I do something similar. I don't go outside, but, but I find myself. I mean, I don't know if do you, how do you wake up? Well, I, I tend to wake up
2: naturally in the middle okay, of the so. night. Yeah, there's my, my lonely Cocker Spaniel. My wife has left the house for a Christmas party, and there he is just mourning. I think it was Aladdin Rumi who wrote this poem about love dogs. He said, There are dogs who cry Allah throughout the night.
1: Wow. Well. <laughs> There she is crying, Allah, Allah, Allah throughout Allah, the night. Allah. It's okay. We can um, we can commiserate with her loss <laughs> of you know, her beloved for the moment. But but I, I find myself doing the same thing. I don't set an alarm. I I can't imagine doing that. I think that would be so yeah. jarring. Yeah. But I I wake naturally in the middle of the night. I don't. I know. I, I guess it's four hours. Into sleep. I'd have to really count it. Maybe it's a little more. And then I'm up and I do a a mantra practice that Uh I've been doing for a very long time. And then I go, I go back to sleep after that for a few hours. And, and I find that is the best time to do this.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it really, it really is. And, you know, as we get older, you know, we are, you know, our, our metabolic force, our life force is, is not sufficient to override, you know, this, this, you know, ancient pattern that's really hardwired into our DNA to wake after four hours. And so what a lot of people experience as, you know, insomnia later in life is actually nothing of the kind. It's simply the reversion to this ancient pattern of sleep, right? So, you know, this is, I guess the pharmaceutical industry has made a lot of money off telling people there's something wrong with them. But in fact, nowadays, the most enlightened sleep doctors will, well, the first thing they will tell somebody who comes complaining they wake up in the middle of the night is that it's quite natural and not to sweat it and just try to relax. And mm-hmm. most of the people they tell that won't ever come back to them, won't ask for medication and will, you know, that's the cure. There are people yeah. who have actual sleep disorders that you know need their help, but the right, that's, a, that's majority, a different thing. Yeah, it's a different right. thing. The vast majority of, of people, you know, when they reach their mid mid to late fifties, begin to experience what the sleep doctors call sleep fragmentation, but in fact is is really just the hour of God reasserting itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's just so, it's so fascinating and it's so sad the way, you know, it's been described. Oh no, it's a sleep disorder. No, it's a spirit yeah. ordering. <laughs> it's the opposite of a disorder. That's right. You know, that's I want right. to, I want to, in the time we have left, I want to switch gears abruptly because I think, cannot think of a good segue, but there's a whole part of your book that you've talked about before in, in other settings, but I really wanted to get, get you to talk about again. And you did it in a way that was new to me anyway. And that is talking about the black Madonna. And then, um, you, you write that the, the church, I guess, in the middle ages used to display paintings and statues of what you call or what they called Maria Lactan's, the nursing Mary. Yes. But they suppressed these. And I thought I, in the context of waking up to the dark, I understand why they suppressed the dark Madonna, the black right, Madonna. I right. even heard that, I mean, I spent a long time meditating with the black Madonna in, in Chart, and I heard, I don't even know if this is true, that they they whitewashed her. They did. Yeah, they did. Exactly. I mean, wow, that, they, that oh, is re- such they, a they rest- desecration. They said
2: they were restoring her, but in fact, she, she now looks, you know, like a Barbie doll. I mean, they, they whitened her face and, you know, she, who knows if, you know, what color she originally was, but from people burning incense and candles, you know, beneath her for hundreds and hundreds of years, her face became quite dark. And many of the Black Madonnas, you know, throughout Europe that exist today were originally Black, were always Black, right? They were mm-hmm. made of woods like ebony or dark woods like ebony or walnut. And they didn't bother to paint their faces. They liked them dark. Right. That, that spoke to people. And these Black Madonnas, if you if you look at the old pilgrimage routes and you look at the places where devotion was strongest, where the most miracles were recorded, it's generally the sites that venerate these Black Madonnas. or something about that cathonic dark force that uh, that awakened a very deep faith in people and allowed them to experience the miraculous.
1: Yeah. And, and then they, they would, so, so that's a desecration, I would think. Yeah. yeah, Definitely in line with the enlightenment you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Then this notion of suppressing the nursing Mary. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I can answer my own question, but I want to get your take on it. What, what are we so afraid of or what is the church? Cause that's really in particular, but what, what is the patriarchy so afraid of?
2: Right. Well, they still exist in the Louvre, and you 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 find them certainly in, in South American art. You know, you can you can find nursing Marys today, right? Mary with her breast expo- exposed. And one of my favorites, a Cusco painting from the Cusco region, is a, a picture of Mary expressing drops of milk, right, from from her nipple, which immediately turn into rosary beads, right. So that there's this association between you know nursing and mantra. And that state of deep entrustment that one gets into in reciting a mantra like the Hail Mary over and over. again. But, you know, the, the oldest, one of the oldest symbols in Christianity was the nursing Mary. The oldest, you know, representation of Mary comes from the catacomb of Priscilla, and it depicts Mary nursing the infant Jesus. But the image goes back much further even than Christianity as the nursing Isis, right? We, we, we find this image repeated over and over again. And even when we go back into the Upper Paleolithic, we see statuettes, figurines of the great mother who, although she may not be nursing a child, has very you know rounded hips, oftentimes and very full breasts, like those of a nursing mother or pregnant woman. And so there is this feeling of, of, of nurturance, right? And, and, and safety that emanates from these statues. And I think that the, the Black Madonnas and these Maria Lactans paintings and statues, right? That these are the direct descendants of these older representations of the Great Mother. So I think what happens is that you begin to, to see a, um, a desacralization of the divine feminine towards the end of the Middle Ages. And it it accompanies, I think, the the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation for being criticized for their devotion to Mary, right? The the Protestant uh, Reformers wanted to be all Jesus all the time. And Mary is one of the, you know, the main sources of their their ire, you know, one one of the figures that they most strongly critique. And so the church begins to, toward the end of the Middle Ages, the church begins to really pull back from from the more uh, earthier, you know, and even more erotic representations of of Mary and Jesus. And so you begin to see the art becoming, you know, more more modest, right? Much more sort of narrative eye, and much more th- quote, quote theologically correct. And of course, Mary herself. Toward the end of the Middle Ages, is she's really no longer behaving like a goddess. I'm always struck by the fact that you know Catholic theologians don't want to think of Mary herself as being divine or all powerful. She's merely seen as a intercessor with Jesus, who is the one who actually prepares the mar- performs the miracles. But if you go back and look at the great miracle cycle of the Middle Ages, you find that in many of the miracle stories where people go to a statue of the Virgin Mary typically and they pray before her and and a miracle occurs, their prayer is answered, a healing, a deliverance, you know, freedom from prison, whatever. In most of these stories, Jesus and God don't even appear. The lady performs the miracle, Right. And maybe, maybe Jesus or God make kind of a cameo type appearance in the story, just, just to, to sort of, you know, put Christianity on the page. But really people are praying to this powerful, protective maternal figure. And many of these, these figures that they would pray to were these Maria Lactan statues and they would go to them and pray before them. One of the, one of my favorite legends says that the young saint bernard right bernard of clervaux right. he had he was sick and he was attending a, a seminary as a young man and he went to the chapel where there was a black madonna maria lactans and she expressed milk a, a thin stream directly from her breast into his forehead right there are even there are paintings today and lithographs where where you see the a stream of milk hitting him right between the eyes, like where the third eye would be. And in the stories about Bernard, it is said that his great talent for preaching came from this moment, that that his gift for, for preaching, and he preached a great deal about Our Lady, about the Virgin Mary, like she was his favorite subject. In fact, the Song of Songs was the thing he commented on the most. Right, this this ancient love poem, which is really about the, really a kind of a pen to the to the dark goddess. He was preaching on it the day he died. He called his monks together and said he had something still to say about it.
1: Wow, something. Yeah, else. it is. It's it's so powerful. I mean, I think we both have this sense. and I'm going to ask you to read something from the book to bring this conversation to a close. But we both have this sense of. The importance of the black Madonna, the the, the the divine feminine coming back in this dark form, you know, in a response to your dogs calling out for Allah <laughs> and expecting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> mother Perdita to come and, and you know, nurture yeah. your puppy. And, and so, you know, that's what we're all hoping for. Yeah. But th- there was this in early 1700s, St. Louis de Montfort, who wrote lots of books about the divine mother in the, right. in the context of his, his church world. And one of them, I, I did an interpretive translation in English. He wrote in French called The Love of Eternal Wisdom. Well, I had that. It's a wonderful book. Yeah. And, you know, in the, In the French, it's all feminine language. In the official Catholic English, they took it all out. It's all masculine. Right. And I was asked to, to, when I was asked to do my interpretive reading of it, they asked me to put the feminine back in, in English. And it's, I mean, it's just, there is this struggle going on, uh, you know, to reclaim, to just open up to the dark, and to the mother who's who really is coming out of the dark, which leads me to ask you a favor. Yes. And that is to read, I, I don't know if I, you can read the whole page, but it won't be that long. And I think it's a great way to bring this to an end. And even though it ends on a question, I think that's good. We'll end on a question and let the reader ponder the question. So if you could read from so page 110, just at the end of the third part of the book, you talk about the great narrowing. So you know, that's, that's sort of what we're going through now
2: right yeah, that that great narrowing in the context of the book is a time when human creativity and ingenuity will be of limited force and effect, right that that's the what that term means, the great narrowing. yeah, and this is the the last page of the book proper, the part four, which is only three pages long, which which comes right after it are the words of Our Lady herself, the Gospel according to the so this is these are the paragraphs that directly precede that gospel. Whether that great narrowing will lead to a new birth or to a stillbirth remains as yet unknown. It may take centuries to tell if humanity can survive the sixth great extinction in our planet's history. But Mary is the midwife for that passage. She is the guide to lead us through the dark. Of that much, I am sure. Only she isn't just Mary. She is Pravati, Durga, and Kali too. And of course, she has had so many other names, some of them older than human memory. But all of those names are about to collapse into one great reality. If pressed to give one name to her on its advent, I would call her Our Lady of Climate Change. That name is the expression of a desperate plea and of an equally desperate hope, for hope also must be desperate when it follows us over the edge. Did you suppose there would be no hand to take yours when you reached into the dark? I had been feeling despair and hope in equal measures when she said it. Despair because of what the world had come to and hope because of her. But I hadn't understood She meant at the time. I have since lost the belief that there is a human solution to the raveled tapestry of the world. We cannot think our way out of this predicament any more than a baby can force its way out of the womb. I only know this whether we live or die, we are held in one embrace. My body is the body of the world, she told me. Your body is one with that body, what cause could there be for fear?
1: Our guest today, Clark Strand, is the author of Waking Up to the Dark, The Black Madonna's Gospel for an Age of Extinction and Collapse. Clark Strand, thank you so much for being with us on Spirituality and Health Podcast.
2: Thank you, Rami, always always a pleasure.
1: Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality and Health magazine, we wish you all a blessed, holy, and purposeful new year.